Hello, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would do an episode about adoption. Adoption. It's a pretty big topic and one that is relevant to me in my career. I was prompted to do an episode on adoption because a patron wrote in and asked to uh, for for us to do an episode on adoption. He. Uh, I'll just summarize his email. Is a is a is a nice email. And he said that he was adopted at birth. His mom is a psychoanalyst. His parents are very loving. His adoptive parents are very loving and and they're good parents. And the patron has spent a lot of time learning about psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory, even though he's not a clinician. He's half white, half Native American. So he, uh, that's his, you know, biological roots. His birth parents or biological parents were uh, one was white and one was Native American. His birth family uh, were not so great in his life when he was growing up. They, his birth family um, committed a lot of unwanted and uninvited incursions in his life, he said. Uh, I don't know the exact details on that, but in my experience, what that means is that the birth parents w- had contact with the adopted child with, you know, with their, uh, biological child who had been adopted into this other family and might have, uh, been a little chaotic themselves and might have, uh, uh, asked for visitation, uh, sporadically. And when visitation happened, it didn't go so well. They might have auctioned there. And I, I don't know what he means by, in you know uninvited incursions into his life, but uh, that can even get as severe as the birth parents trying to steal the child back. Um, I, he didn't mention anything like that, but it, it sounded like uh, the contact that he had with his birth family growing up was not pleasant. Um, as he was growing up, the patron said that he felt very different in his neighborhood because he looked different. I, I from his email, my guess was that he grew up in a white neighborhood and because he's half native he didn't look entirely white and so uh, he was um, discriminated against and uh, made to answer a lot of funny questions like why do you look like that and stuff and that's exactly my experience growing up as a half Japanese half white person I grew up in in a predominantly white neighborhood uh, one might say a hundred percent white in some ways in Sammamish. Now there's a lot more Asians out there, but not in the seventies. And absolutely. I remember being asked all sorts of stupid questions that, uh, were, you know, basically coming from an innocent place. But after the 500th thousandth time of answering the same stupid question, you just you just want, especially when you're young and you just want to fit in. But really, people want to fit in at, at all times. I'll, I'll tell you, I w- went to, I have a Honda. I, my last name's Honda. I, I have a Honda Accord. I, I don't always try to buy Hondas, but whenever I go buying cars, I, I just find that Honda Accords are just my car. It's like the right price point. It feels right. And there are other cars that are similar, but it's like, I don't know. Anyway, keeping the family, I guess. But anyway, so I took my car back to the dealership to be serviced. 
And whenever you go to a dealership, there's a lot of times where they ask you your name, right? You know, they'll say, oh, well, let's check you in. What's your name? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you go to another station and they say, oh, what's your name? And so there's, there's four or five people that I told my name to. And, you know, Kirk Honda. And actually in the Seattle area, there's a dealership in Kirkland. And so it's Kirkland Honda. And so, uh, and I get calls sometimes people wanting to, uh, they look me up in the phone book or whatever, and they think I'm, I'm the dealership. But anyway, so they asked my name, my name's Kirk Honda and they didn't blink an eye. My, my name could have been Joseph Smith and no one ever said a single thing, which I thought was great. Usually when I go to a dealership and I say my name's Honda, they're like, oh boy, you, are you related to the owner? And, and da, 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 you know, and again, the first couple of times that happened fine. But after a thousand times, you just, you just want to, I don't know, maybe I'm just more introverted or shy or something. I just don't want that attention. <laughs> and so I was really happy that Linwood Honda up north of Seattle, uh, they didn't say a word about my name. But anyway, so I totally understand what the patron is talking about in terms of growing up in a white neighborhood and uh, even in a white family and not looking entirely white. And so that didn't go so well for him either. The patron also said that he had a, uh, he had a bad breakup a few years ago, which resulted in anxiety and depression. He was a financial advisor, but now he's a music producer, which is pretty cool. As a person who wanted to be a music producer when I was a teenager, I can, uh, I don't know, I can see why he made that switch. Uh, he went to therapy, took meds, which helped. But throughout his life, he's had identity issues related to his adoption. He's had self-esteem issues related just in life, but maybe to his adoption. And he's felt like he hasn't fit, fit in very well. Again, adopted at birth, so there wasn't a, an attachment disruption uh, past, you know, the birth attachment disruption, which there are arguments that there is an attachment disruption there, but but not as severe as if you're, say, adopted at the age of five or something. But, um, and, you know, he, he wants to know uh, what uh, my opinion is on this. And I've treated a lot of people who have been adopted. I've treated a lot of families uh, that have adoption as a, as a major issue. I've seen a lot of different things in my career, and I've also looked into the research, and there's quite a bit of research on adoption. So I thought today that's what I would talk about, I'd talk about adoption and the research and the clinical side and the development and identity and psychodynamics and all that kind of stuff. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes on their phones, or on other places. And when you become a patron, we'll tell you how to access those premium episodes on your phone. And know that a portion of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. We love you very, very much. Thanks for sticking with us. All right, so let's go into the research before I talk about my take on the matter. 
So first off, most of the research on adoption is on children who were adopted later in their childhood life. There's not a lot of research on children adopted at birth. It's, it's a little strange, but I'm guessing it's because there are much less problems with children who are adopted directly at birth. There's an increasing prevalence of adoption throughout the world, I think, but particularly in the United States. More, more U.S. families are choosing to adopt in recent years. It's a bit of a speculation that I have here, but I'm guessing it has to do with older parents who can't have children. Pe- you know, People are waiting longer and longer to have kids. I have clients like this who are, say, 35 and single and have been focusing on their career and have uh, not made having children a priority, and then they're uh, running out of time, if, if they're women, uh, to have uh, low-risk pregnancies. And so you're, you might be 45, you might be 50 before you even decide to have kids. And so for those people, adoption is a perfect answer to that. Uh, also, another speculation is that maybe there's less interest in giving birth yourself as, I mean, the, the primary way that people have kids today is through the old fashioned way, but uh, there's a slight, you know, number of, of more adoptions. And, and I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that there's not the stigma uh, as much. There certainly still is stigma around adoption, but maybe less so. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, it, it was there was a, a lot of stigma around being adopted. It was like you were a reject or there was something wrong with you. It wasn't something I, you know, believed or propagated, but I, I remember that being in the air, you know. And so as the stigma goes down, then adoption rates are likely to go up, right? Also, I'm guessing just a speculation that there are uh, an increasing number of couples who are interested in helping children in need from around the world. If, you, if you're planning on having a kid, uh, for some parents are thinking, well, why not adopt a kid who is in need? And then uh, we can not only have a child, but we can also really uh, potentially even save someone's life. You know. Also, another speculation, there's more gay and lesbian couples and there's more rights and more interest for them to adopt, to have kids. And depending on your situation, adoption uh, might be a, uh, a preferred option uh, for people. Of course, there are other options for gay and lesbian couples. Okay. Also international adoption has been increasing, meaning U S couples adopting children from other countries there, uh, there's, I think it's a, is, is it a This American Life episode that I heard about this, about adopting kids from India or something? It, there's, or surrogate uh, parents or anyway. Anyway, but there's, there's, there's more international adoptions. I saw one figure that said about 13% of all adoptions in the United States are international. But I saw uh, numbers that were different than that, so I'm not quite sure. And most of the international adoptions come from Eastern Europe and primarily from Russia. There have been some famous cases of, of Russia. And if I remember right, I think 
Putin signed some law that said that all uh, Russian children are banned from being adopted to the United States because of some high-profile scandals um, of, of Russian children dying after being adopted into the United States uh, and being abused in some ways. And so, um, but that isn't in front of me right now. Okay. Also, it's increasing as older children being adopted is, is, is on the increase. There's been, there's been a growing public interest in adopting and adopting older children. Perhaps again, uh, speculation that there's a lack of infants available for adoption. There's, there's not as many infants that are available. And so people go, well, okay, if I can't get an infant, I'll take an older child. There's also extremely long waiting periods for infants, meaning that when, if you're an American couple and you want to adopt uh, a child and you, you have to fill it out, it's a long process that they make you go through uh, frequently and uh, can take years. And if you're waiting for an infant, you might be waiting five, six, seven years, maybe. Whereas if you say, well, I'm open to both, I'm open to infants and older children, then your, your time, your waiting period might be like a year or two instead or something. So people are thinking, well, I, I don't want to wait seven years to have a kid. So uh, sure, I'll take, I'll take an older kid, a five-year-old, a three-year-old or something. Also, fear of birth parents wanting their child back is another speculation that I have. There are some high-profile cases in which children, infants, are adopted into families, and then the birth parents want the child back, and then there's a legal problem there. I think there was a This American Life episode about that, too, if I remember right. Or maybe it was uh, Radiolab. I get those two mixed up sometimes. Um, um, but uh, so parents are thinking, well, if if older children are more stable in in that we know for sure that the parent, the birth parents are either not alive or they don't want the child back, then, then I'll take an older child because it, it might be more stable. Again, it's just speculation. Also, uh, older children might be uh, being adopted more often because media coverage of orphaned older children who need families. So there are, you know, uh, TV shows and commercials and stuff that will show how there are older kids being left in orphanages around the world and they are desperately in need of a family to love them. And so because of this media coverage, there are uh, adoptive parents who are saying, Oh man, uh, that's terrible. Let, you know, absolutely. I'll adopt a child, an older child, because I don't want that person to go unloved and without a family. Okay. So increased prevalence of adoption, increased international adoption, and increase of older children being adopted. Now let's go into the research regarding the problems with adopting older children. Now this doesn't apply to the patron that was writing in because he was adopted at birth. But again, a lot of the research has to do with older children, and there's a lot of research on uh, the problems of adopting older children. And this is something that if you don't know about, you really should know about because it's 
something that impacts a lot of people's lives unexpectedly when they adopt older children. So research shows that children adopted after the age of 18 months. So just, just after, so it's, you know, still pretty young, but after the age of 18 months, we're found to have much more problems later in life. So children adopted soon after birth, you know, just after birth or at birth fare better in life among all the variables that we measure people's quote unquote success by, you know, like behavioral problems, academic problems, mental health issues, criminality, uh, drop out from school rates, that kind of stuff. So if you're adopted after 18 months, the risk of having all those problems goes up quite a bit. Older children who are adopted are at a greater risk for what they call disrupted adoptions or dissolved adoptions. You know, basically these are euphemisms in my opinion for adoptive parents who want to divorce their adopted kid. They, They want to send the kid back to the adoption agency or they want to send the kid back to the state or something. And, and I'll get into this more later, but I I've seen this a lot. And again, it has to do with adoptive parents not knowing what they're getting into. Um, so for instance, uh, so again, older children are at a greater risk of that happening where the parents are like, I, I can't handle this kid anymore which is, you know, just a huge tragedy, right? Imagine being adopted into a family and then the your the family sends you back. It's just it's terrible. Uh, I'll get into more of the justifications for that because it's not necessarily unjustified for some adoptive parents, but anyway. For instance, research finds that 16% of children adopted after the age of 3 are sent back to the state or dissolved in some other way. 16% that's a lot. So if you're adopted after the age of three, uh, you you have a 16% chance of being sent back by your parents eventually. For instance, a, the famous case in which a single mother sent her adopted seven-year-old son back to Russia on an airplane. Uh, it, you might have seen this in the news. She you know, had adopted... A child from Russia, an older child. Things didn't go very well, and so she put the child on an airplane back to Russia, forced the child to fly back to Russia, uh, and she didn't get on the plane. She just sent him back there and, and said, you know, you can have him back. Of course, you know, that's not how you're supposed to do things, and I think this was part of the reason why Putin um, made it, uh, put a, you know, what do you call it, a referendum or a temporary stop on uh, uh, Russian kids being adopted in the United States, which is kind of dumb. It's sort of a reactionary reaction. Uh, uh, adopt. There's, there's, you know, as we get into it, as we've already established, there are problems with adoption. Sometimes it's not always a sure thing. And so to just make it so that no Russian kids can be adopted in the United States uh, because there's a couple instances where things go wrong um, is a little, Uh, short-sighted in my opinion but anyway okay so as we can see there's a there's a lot of problems with uh, adopting older children this doesn't mean that there's always problems and this doesn't mean that there can't be problems with uh, kids who are adopted at birth and this doesn't mean you can't have problems 
with biological children, right? I mean, we can certainly uh, see examples and maybe even know from your own life in which um, even when you have kids the traditional way, that isn't a guarantee that you're going to have um, no issues with the child. But there's just a higher risk of it when you adopt kids who are older. And I've seen this um, in uh, upfront and personal in my professional life. Because I, I used to actually have a mini specialty in treating families with Korean adoptees. So often they were white families in Seattle who had adopted Korean children. There was, I think, it's seemingly a wave about 20, 30 years ago in which a lot of Korean kids were adopted by white American families. And so uh, for whatever reason, I just became known in the community as someone who could help with that. And a lot of the Koreans were adopted after 18 months. So um, they would, as teenagers, they would exhibit a lot of these problems, a lot of rebellion, but I'll get more to that later. Okay. So let's just uh, talk a little bit about the differences between adopted children and biological children, meaning, you know, they're in their biological families. So unlike biological parents, adopt, adoptive parents are subjected to a lot of intrusive scrutiny and legal procedures with absolutely no certainty about when they'll be able to adopt. As I was talking about earlier, they are often dragged through a pretty lengthy legal process. They, they're interviewed, they're scrutinized, they're picked over, they're uh, humiliated sometimes, and there's no guarantee they'll even get a kid. They sometimes have to spend tens of thousands of dollars. They uh, might have to fly to the country and a number of times. It, it's, it's really, um, it can be tough. You know, it can be traumatic for some parents. You know, I know, I know couples who you know, are wonderful people and go through the process in a, you know, very intentional way. They cooperate fully and years into it, they almost get a kid and then something goes wrong and the kid, you know, they're like, no, you can't have this kid. And then they wait and then they get shuffled around and then they almost get another kid. And then they're told, no, you're not going to get this kid. And, but, but they've kind of bought, sometimes they start already bonding with the kid or at the very least they see pictures and they start making plans and like, Oh my God, we're going to get little Alice and she's going to come live with us and da, 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 da. And they tell everyone we're, we're adopting this child and it's going to be so great. We're finally going to be a family. And then the agency or whatever will say, Nope, you can't have this kid. And it just, I mean, I'm talking about some horror stories, but it, at the very least, it's it's a it's a stressful experience that's not always this wonderful experience. You know, it's not like couples, uh, you know, go to a website and click a box and say, "I would like a kid," and then a kid shows up. It's 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 very very uh, different than that, <laughs> and usually, okay. Another thing I should mention is that adoptive parents exhibit more social and psychological resources and stability than biological parents. So, in other words, uh, for whatever reason, when they study parents who adopt versus parents 
who have kids uh, biologically, they find that adoptive parents have greater psychological resources. They're, they're more psychologically stable. And they also have more social resources and financial. They're wealthier often. So it's just kind of interesting, right? Also, couples who seek to adopt, they have more secure attachment styles. And also adoptive mothers in particular, so um, women who choose to adopt, show less marital distress than mothers who have children biologically. So there's a lot of really uh, strong things related to uh, adoptive parents in general. You know, they're, they're more stable, they're more securely attached with their own parents, they have more social resources, they're more wealthy, they're often more educated, and uh, so they're, they're really set up to, on average, provide a good home for, for adoptive uh, children. Okay. So that's some of the differences between adopted and biological families. But let's go into attachment. This is a, a big topic within, within adoption. So attachment styles of adopted couples predict the developmental success in adopted children. So in other words, you know, attachment style is the style with which you attach to other people. And it's on a spectrum from secure to insecure. And there are different types of insecure attachment, but we'll just stick with the secure and secure. So if you're raised well and your parents are properly attached to you, they're attuned to your needs, but they also don't stifle you, then you develop a secure attachment style in that when you attach to other people, you tend to have self-esteem you tend to uh, love the other person in a in a uh, appropriate way. You tend to be able to uh, attune to their needs. You tend to uh, develop relationships in which other people are um, satisfactory to you. <laughs> I'm having a hard time describing attachment styles right now, but and the opposite is true for insecure attachment. So if you're raised in a way in which you're left too much on your own or you're not left enough on your own, or your parents are chaotic, or they don't give you enough love and attention, then you develop, on average, what they call insecure attachment, which as, a, as an adult, you're either extremely distant to other people and, and fiercely independent and, and uh, don't trust others, basically, or you might be insecurely attached in that you are extremely anxious and preoccupied with how other people think about you and, and you'll obsess about, does this person love me? Is this person cheating on me? That kind of stuff. And so uh, people who ha are adopting, so couples who want to adopt, uh, their, their attachment style is highly predictive, predicting of the developmental success of the adopted children. Now, this is a no-duh to many of you because it's true for any parent, whether you're ad adoptive or not, that your attachment style will absolutely play a role in how well your children develop. But anyway, research has found that. Adopted children of secure parents have better outcomes. So again, if, if you, as a parent, have a, a secure attachment style... 
and you adopt a child, then that child will have better outcomes in terms of those factors we talked about. Um, also, the length of time in institutional care. So institutional care is if you're in an orphanage, this sort of thing. And uh, this happens to a lot of kids. I, I don't know the statistics, but um, particular, I know of cases in other countries like Korea, for instance, when you are orphaned, you are put into an institution, into a, you know, a, a hospital kind of orphanage kind of place. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you don't even necessarily, I think parents in Korea can just, can just drop their kids off at, I'm not, don't quote me on that, but so your, your parents don't even necessarily have to die. You can, I think for some kids, the kids are just, you know, neglected and left at the, at the orphanages by their biological parents, but don't quote me on that anyway. So the length of time in institutional care has been associated with attachment related symptoms. So things like excessive need for adult attention or indiscriminate friendliness or lack of comfort seeking, even when you're distressed or, uh, they've, you know, people who grew up in institutions, they, they might give up on people because they're like, ah, people don't, you know, they can't be trusted and no one will ever love me or they need people too much. So that insecure attachment, right? So they, they either uh, give up on people and say, you know, screw it. I'm just going to be on my own. Or they obsess about what, other, what everyone is thinking about them. Okay. So children with prior behavioral and emotional issues have much more difficulty attaching to their adoptive parents. So it, this is another detail that uh, I think is intuitive, but when you have kids who prior to adoption have problems, research has found that those kids have a harder time attaching to their adoptive parents. Okay, let's talk about the DSM here for a second, because for many people in my field, I find, I find that they use a lot of the language of the DSM. So uh, let's talk about that. So DSM-4 and DSM-5, but let's talk about DSM-4 first because uh, some of you might be mainly familiar with 4 and not as familiar with the new language in 5. So let's talk about 4 first, published 1994. So we have reactive attachment disorder. Reactive attachment disorder, or RAD, or RAD for short. It's overly diagnosed, in my opinion, it's one of those diagnoses that I find a lot of therapists when they, uh, because I think I've talked about this before, but, and many of you know this, if you're a professional, in order to justify payment from insurance, you have to provide a medically necessary diagnosis. And for a lot of kids in therapy, a lot of people in therapy, they might not fit neatly into any of the diagnoses. They might not suffer from major depression or panic or schizophrenia or something. And so there are certain disorders that clinicians or assessors and intake people will turn to because they can be easily applied to a lot of different people. Adjustment disorders, generalized anxiety, which I really don't understand why people use that one liberally. I understand adjustment disorders because... 
those are fairly general, but but uh, generalized anxiety is pretty specific. And also reactive attachment disorder. That's another one that people just throw out there. ADHD is another one. And so uh, I will find a lot of clinicians, particularly at agencies, you know, half or 75% of their clients will be diagnosed with reactive attachment, which is possible, but not likely. So, um, but anyway, so reactive attachment disorder or RAD, there are two basic types in the, in four DSM four DSM five. It's different, but get more to that in a second. So there are two basic types in DSM four. One is inhibited and the other one is disinhibited. So the inhibited subtype of reactive attachment, this is uh, as a result of having an attachment disruption in your life, like, like being adopted or being in, a, in an institution. You basically have reacted to the attachment disruption by inhibiting yourself. So you don't initiate social interactions. You don't respond to social interactions. You're emotionally withdrawn, meaning you don't express yourself emotionally. You're very internal. You don't seek comfort from other people. When you're stressed out, you are inhibited or ambivalent about the stress. These people are known for what we might call being shut down. In, in times of trouble or even in times of good, they will just shut down. They just be like emotionally dead and unresponsive. They're not like comatose, but when you talk to them, they don't seem like they're really there or they're not really telling you what's going on. They're very, it's almost like they're secretive in a, in a way. And these inhibited reactive attachment people uh, sometimes suffer from depression and self-esteem problems. Okay, so that's one basic type of, of reactive attachment. The other one is disinhibited. So this is where you react in the opposite direction. So instead of shutting down and distancing yourself, you become extremely uh, attached to everybody is one way to put it. So you are indiscriminate when you socialize. You'll, you'll see these kinds of kids at the mall. They'll just walk up to a stranger and start talking to them. Or as soon as they meet you, they're like super attached to you, even though they don't know who you are. They are what they call inappropriately familiar with other people. They'll treat everyone like they're a friend. Essentially, you can understand why if you have an attachment disruption, you can understand why you would be shut down over time, right? Because you're trying to protect yourself. It's like, well, if I just shut down, I won't be hurt. But the disinhibited type is interesting because, you know, everyone has a need for attachment. Everyone has a need for human contact. And when you grow up in a family that just never gave you that, then you don't understand the difference between loved ones and strangers because your loved ones never really treated you uh, any different than strangers did. You know, strangers ignored you and so did your loved ones. Or you grew up in an institution in which uh, everyone, there was no loved ones. You just had a bunch of strangers, essentially, uh, nurses and shift workers taking care of you. And so 
you you don't have a, a notion that there are loved ones and then there are strangers. You just, but you still have this need inside of you to attach and to socialize, and so you basically just point your needs at everyone in the world instead of focusing in on people that are quote unquote appropriate for that. So again, the disinhibited type of a, of a reactive attachment, they'll attach to strangers. They'll approach strangers strangely. They, uh, they don't know the difference between strangers and attachment figures to get their attachment needs met. They'll approach anyone. They'll, they'll readily wander off with strangers, not because they're stupid, but just because they trust everyone. Um, they show limited differentiation among adults, which is interesting, in that they, uh, as children, they might not necessarily know the difference between someone who is a caregiver and just a random stranger. And this can be very distressing for an adoptive parent it, it, to, to have your child whom you've loved for two years and taken care of, to have this child treat a random stranger with the same amount of love and affection as they treat you or the same amount of, you know, attachment is, is distressing. Cause it's like, you know, I, the, this child should be uh, loyal to me in some ways because I've been taking care of the child for so long, but it's because of this reactive attachment and the attachment disruption that the child just doesn't really necessarily see the difference between loved ones and, and strangers. Also, in this, uh, this disinhibited reactive attachment kids will fail to check back with their parents when they're stressed out. So similar to the inhibited type, they, they don't necessarily reach out for help because as young children, they learned early that you can't depend on other people, so why even ask? They have difficulty forming close relationships, and this disinhibited type is associated with ADHD. It's associated with what we call quasi-autism. In other words, it, it looks like autism, but it's not actual autism. So we have those two basic types, the inhibited subtype of reactive attachment and disinhibited. And also you have a mixed type in dsm 4 which is just a mixture of both. And these people, research has found that these people are usually... The particularly problematic if they have a mixed subtype. Now, both types of reactive attachment have internalizing behaviors like self-worth issues, depression, self-hatred, self-injury. Both types are associated with externalizing behaviors like aggression, rebellion, and defiance. And both types are associated with emotional regulation problems. Okay, so that's DSM-4. Let's go to DSM-5 now. So in DSM-5, for reasons that I'm sure make sense to the authors but are unknown to me, they changed the diagnosis uh, to some extent. So reactive attachment disorder now only uh, includes the inhibited subtype. So there are no two types of reactive attachment. You, you just have... Reactive attachment is, so they just took, they took out the disinhibited attachment style uh, to reactive attachment, <laughs> and they named it something else. So they took these two subtypes and they named, they, they, <laughs> um, okay, so again, reactive attachment, DSM-4, two types. And in DSM-5, 
they took those two types and they split them up into two different disorders. And they left reactive attachment as the inhibited, and they took the disinhibited subtype and they named it this new disorder called disinhibited social engagement disorder. Why in the world they did this, I'm not sure. Again, I'm sure there's some logical reason to that, but it just makes it more confusing for all of us. So now we have reactive attachment, which is the inhibited, and we have the disinhibited social engagement disorder, or DSED. Now, as you can tell, I use a lot of words when it comes, a, a lot of different sorts of terms when it comes to attachment issues. I'll, I'll use words like attachment trauma, relational trauma, I've said in other episodes, attachment disruption, attachment injury, attachment injury reaction. I, I tend to use these labels instead of the DSM language just because it's easier for me to understand uh, I, the, I, the reactive attachment lingo has always, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't appeal to me, but I understand why people use it. Okay, so that's DSM. Now let's talk about the problems with adoption in general. We've talked about the problems of adopting older children, but let's just talk about the problems of adoption in general, the kinds of problems that people run into. And before I go forward, I, I just want to say that Adoption is a wonderful thing, and, and uh, kids who have been adopted, you know, for the most part, really enjoy being adopted. Adoptive parents are wonderful people. They're, they're noble people who, who should be commended tremendously for what they've done. To uh, raise a child in need is just one of the best things you could ever do on this planet. And so uh, I'll say that. I'll also say that. When I talk about the problems with adoption, I'm only talking about research that shows an increased risk for a number of things. As I said earlier, it's, uh, it's not like having biological children eliminates those risks. It just means that they're just, they're just lower in biological families. So uh, I just want to make sure I say that. All right, so the problems with adoption. Adopted children, regardless of when they're adopted have a greater risk of behavioral problems, academic problems, developmental delays, all increase the longer the child was uh, left in an institution or the, the older the child is before they become adopted. So the earlier age you adopt a child, and if a child wasn't in an institution, then the much less risk you have of these, of these problems. For instance, one study set out to demonstrate that good families can mitigate the damage done to children who are adopted later in childhood. So the study was like, we have an, we have an hypothesis and we want to test it. And we want to say that even if you have uh, children who are exhibiting problems as a child, if you can adopt them into good families, then this, this good nurturing can reduce those problems in those kids, you know. So say you have a five-year-old boy who is in foster care and who is aggressive, low self-esteem, ADHD, uh, developmental problems. And these researchers are like, well, if you take a child like that and you put him into a good family, a good stable family with resources and with, you know, counseling and all this kind of stuff, then that five-year-old kid should get better, according to 
our understanding of how this thing works because the child will get proper attachment and get their needs met and they'll be okay. So these these researchers thought that they would find data showing that when you take a child from a difficult life and you give them love and attention and good parenting, the child's problems will decrease. But what they found was that good families had no effect on the problem behaviors over time. <laughs> I just want to say this because this is my experience, honestly. And, and it, in, my, in some ways, I think, demonstrates the, how uh, it really shatters the myth involved in, in adoption. Uh, so I just want to say these researchers were trying to find that good families could correct for uh, children who had, you know, attachment problems because of, of, a, of a being in the system. What they found instead was that good families, so families that were measured to be good, however they measured that, they didn't have any effect on the problem behaviors of the adopted child over time. So you have a five-year-old child in an institution exhibiting all these sorts of problems. A good family uh, adopts them, and the problems don't go away for years, ever, maybe. In fact, some children, mainly girls, strangely, had an increase in problem behaviors after being adopted. So, and I'll get more into this in a second, but it just really needs to be understood by everybody that... uh, the the early damage done, and I don't use the word damage lightly, the early damage done it, from the attachment disruptions of being institutionalized or being bounced around from foster care or losing your parents to drug addiction or death or something, those kinds of attachment disruptions cannot be uh, turned around for many kids. Now, whenever I say this to people, they're always, they always will raise their hand and, and will give me a story in which people have been turned around, where they did come from a difficult attachment injury background and were adopted into a good family and did exhibit um, a reduction in the uh, problem behaviors. And certainly I've seen that too. But on average, and, uh, f- and often is the case is the behaviors don't go away. In fact, as the child gets older and enters into adolescence, age 12, 13, 14, the problems get much worse because 12, 13, 14 year olds are usually problematic anyway. And so if you have this history of attachment injury, it, it um, really exacerbates the problems of adolescence, drug use, dropping out of school, running away, being detached from your parents, stealing from your parents, drug addiction. I've seen it all. As I said, I, for a time, specialized in adopted kids, and I saw some, some very interesting things. I, I saw, uh, in some ways, psychopathy in, in some kids, because when, when you're uh, neglected as a, as a young infant or mistreated or... Um, you know, there's very there's various different sort of classic backgrounds. For instance, I've told you about the institute. You know, you have a Korean kid who is in an orphanage from the time he's born until the age of two, and then he gets adopted. So that's one scenario. That's a massive attachment problem. The institutions uh, often don't have uh, someone who really takes care of you ongoing, 
And so you just end up as an infant. Sure, you know, you're fed and you're clothed, but no one's loving you. No one's holding you in their arms for eight hours a day the way that, you know, other kids are. So there's that scenario. Another scenario of attachment disruption is you're, you're born in the States and to an American family and your parents are drug addicted and they're on meth, they're on crack, they're on heroin or something. And they are so concentrating on their addiction that they don't have time to take care of you. And they're putting you in a lot of harm's way and they're neglecting you. And you and the parents might be going in and out of uh, institutions themselves or even prison and you're carted around from person to person and then the state CPS at some point gets a hold of you, puts you into foster care and then you might become adopted. Well, that's another common scenario for for attachment disruption. It's 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 really a, it's just such a problem. Drug addiction and parenting the, the the problems that are perpetuated in our society because of because of drug addiction or the lack of treatment or what whatever we want to say there are so many problems with this and and these kids have such profound attachment injuries that it is hard for them to function in uh, in in life they can absolutely they can function with therapy they can get better but but i've seen some kids um, at the age of 15, 16, and you know, you just, you just see their life. I actually, I, I've, I have one family that I've known for a long time clinically for uh, coming up on 20 years. And so I've seen the adopted kid go through all the phases. I, I knew him when he was 13. I knew him you know, when he was 23, I knew him when he was 33. And, and it's just really interesting to see his life. Now his life has, you know, it, it's, it's okay now, but it's, it's been really bumpy. He was adopted and there was just so many problems that he exhibited in his adolescence and so many problems he exhibited in his twenties. And he really put his family through a lot of problems. And at the, at the end of it all and throughout all of it, if you ask the parents, does this child love you, even though you've worked so hard to take care of this child throughout their life and throughout their adult life, you've, you've helped them at every turn and you've, you know, been patient with them and blah, blah, blah. And what they tell me is they're not sure if this child loves them at all. Because when you have an attachment disruption, you, you shut down, as I was saying earlier. And, and it's not a conscious choice. You shut down because your brain actually develops in such a way that you become permanently shut down in some ways. And it makes it really hard for you to express love or even generate the kind of love that other people have. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with parents about this and just said, because they're you know beating their head against the wall and they feel just terrible about themselves because they're trying so hard for their kid and they're, they're not getting anything back. They're not getting any love and affection back. And, you know, and it's not like biological kids or non-attachment disrupted kids, I should say, uh, express a ton of love to their parents. But, uh, but there's some, you know, there's, there's glimmers, right, that, that kids will, uh, and sometimes some kids give a lot of love back to their parents. But there's usually some indication like, oh, okay, my kid loves me. But with 
uh, attachment injured children, and you don't have to be adopted to be attachment injured. You could be in your biological family and absolutely have an attachment disruption. But those kids often will have this attachment style where they've shut down. And it, again, it's not a choice. It's, it's a biological thing that's happened to them. And what happens is, is they just have, they don't have the capacity to love people back in the uh, amount that other people will love you back. And it's very distressing to parents. Okay. So why am I going down that road? All right. So more research. Experts assert that adoptive parents overestimate nurture over nature. So, you know, they believe, the adoptive parents, they believe that their stable family will save the adopted child. And I've actually seen this in friends as well. I've, I have friends who have come to me and said, so I was thinking about adopting this 10-year-old child from, you know, it's a friend of a friend and, and this child really needs a family. And, and I was just thinking, Hey, you know, I could adopt this child and it would, you know, I could really help this kid out. And uh, what I'll say to what I've said, what I told my friend was, that's wonderful. You're a wonderful person for considering that. I think you'd be great for it. But as your friend, I have to tell you what you're potentially signing up for. If you do adopt this child, they're, can because of their attachment problems, they're going to have uh, you know relationship problems and behavioral problems that might be extremely resistant to intervention. Meaning that you know with another kid, if who doesn't have an attachment uh, injury, and they're doing something quote unquote bad, you can parent that that behavior out of them. <laughs> you know. They're lying. And so you sit them down and you say, you know, you, you shouldn't lie. And this is, you know, lying hurts my feelings and I'm disappointed. And what if everyone lied? You know, you just do all the normal parenting things and you go back and forth. And, and eventually the kid learns that lying is not okay and they try not to lie anymore. Well, when you have an attachment injury, one, you don't necessarily care about other people's feelings. And so therefore lying is very easy for you. And two, when you are disciplined or, you know, uh, talked to by your parents and said, look, you know, lying is bad, blah, 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 because you're sort of shut down attachment wise, you're, you're not really paying attention to what they're saying. I've, I've had the most just fascinating conversations with some of these adopted kids or some of these attachment injured children. And lying is actually a very frequent thing that, that these kids will do. Parents will come to me and they'll just say, like, I don't understand why he's lying. I saw him do it. Like, there was this one time where this, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old had thrown a ball at his sister's head. And they were in the yard and the parents were, you know, standing on the porch watching the kids play. And then they saw little Johnny, you know, that's not his real name, but they see little Johnny take a ball and throw it at his sister's head. And then the parents say, hey, hey, don't, you know, don't throw a ball at, at her head. And he, he turns around and he says, I didn't throw a ball at her head. And they're, they're like, yeah, we, we just saw you throw a ball at, at her head. We saw it. He's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't throw a ball. And then the parents are like, well, wait a second. You're lying to us, right? You understand that's not okay. You can't lie to us. And the kid says, I'm not lying. And, and this sort of thing happens 
sometimes with attachment injured kid with with kids who are adopted um, after having an attachment injury. And it's very distressing to parents because the parents are like, wait a second, he's lying even though I I saw him do it. How could he possibly think that he's getting away with something? I, I saw him do it. And what, what purpose does it serve him to continue trying to lie about this? Uh, I've seen this in, in, in girls and boys who have attachment injuries. So again, it, it has to do with a number of factors. One is, is that because the child, when they were young, they were mal- mistreated often, they learned that they really needed to lie in order to get out of severe punishment or severe neglect. And so they have this itchy trigger finger on lying sometimes. The other thing is, again, because they didn't develop real attachment with another human being from the ages of zero to two, they don't necessarily, they've shut that part of themselves down and therefore lying to you. you know, the, when, when people who are properly attached lie to someone, you know, take yourself, for instance, you're listening to this. Let's say, you know, you, 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 let's say you don't have a major attachment disruption. Well, when, or let's just take me. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm, you know, uh, for the most part, securely attached as a, as a child had good parents. And when I have lied to someone as a child or as an adult, I I feel bad in my heart. I feel bad because of compassion and empathy for other people because I I've, I've someone has loved me enough so that I can love other people enough so that I care about hurting their feelings. And if I lie, it hurts their feelings, which it hurts me. I can, I can feel the hurt in my body well, if no one loves you enough, then you don't necessarily love other people back. And by lying to them, it, it doesn't, in the, fa- the fact that lies hurt other people, it doesn't necessarily bother you because you're not really caring about other people's feelings anyway, because no one ever cared about your feelings. And like I said, it's not that it's a conscious decision. It's actually like a brain pathway and a, and of course, as you know from me, our brain science is pretty limited, but there are some there is some evidence, and it makes sense to me that there are particular brain pathways that are open for business, shall we say, at particular points in your development. So zero to two, your attachment circuits are primed and ready to, to develop. And if you don't engage those circuits from zero to two, then it's very difficult to engage those circuits in the future because that window has been passed. So I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of parents who come to me pulling their hair out saying my adopted child is lying all the time. And I just, it's unacceptable. I can't have this kid lying and I'll get more to that in a second. Now, not every adopted kid is like this. I'm talking about the kids who have severe attachment injuries. Not every attachment injury kid acts the same. So I'm really talking about those kinds of cases that end up in my office, you know. And again, I realize I'm not really answering the question of the patron yet. I'll get to that in a second. But because um, what he's asking about is he was adopted at birth and he had a loving family and he feels attached to his family, but has some issues with fitting in and 
you know, with ethnicity and stuff. So I'll get to that in a second. But uh, if I'm going to make a full episode about adoption, I'm going to include the full gamut here. Okay. So um, let's see. Experts assert that adoptive parents overestimate nurture over nature, as I said earlier. Uh, this results in adoptive parents not realizing what they're getting into and they have unrealistic, unrealistic ex- expectations and they, as a result, have increased frustration when things don't go well. Research has found that parents, particularly mothers with greater attention, with greater education, so parents, particularly mothers with greater education, have been found to be more likely to have problems with their adopted children as they expect too much from their adopted children. So too high expectations are for uh, are with higher educated parents, and I've seen this. I've seen highly educated, wealthy parents who adopt kids who are older and have attachment disruptions. They have extremely high expectations because you know they per- were perhaps raised in a high expectation environment, and you know they really want their kid to to do well, and they love their kid, and they want their kid to do well, but. Um, because their expectations are too high and they don't realize how much this attachment injury is going to affect the child, they end up becoming extremely frustrated with their kid instead of just lowering their expectations. And I'll I'll get more to that in a second. So adoption dissolution or, you know, the termination of the adoptive relationship where the, where the adoptive parents ask for uh, the state to take the child back. Everyone suffers in this. It's a terrible event, and I've seen it happen. Like I said, 16%, uh, according to research, of American adoptive families of kids who were adopted later in life. 16% of them end up sending the child back. That's a lot of kids, and, and a lot of people suffer from that. The child suffers, obviously. But the parents suffer too. I mean, imagine yourself. You have this lofty goal of adopting a child and and making his or her life better. And then you adopt the child and things are going well and then things start to not go well. And you get involved with a lot of professionals and therapists and social workers and you, you're frustrated and you feel like you're a terrible parent. And then you start having this growing thought of, I don't know if I can do this anymore. This child is ruining my life and I, this child hates me. And I don't think it's a good thing that I ever, why did I, I never should have adopted this child and I'm depressed and my family is falling apart and he or she is, is terrorizing me, which can happen by the way. Again, this is a minority of adopted kids, but it happens. And then, you know, you send the kid back and you probably have a mixture of feelings of relief, but extreme guilt and shame at the same time. Because you're the sort of person who probably really cares about humans and really wants to help. And then you just send this kid back. So, yeah, and I've seen that. I've seen this happen to many, many families. Uh, another uh, study found that less than half, less than half of adoptive parents indicated they would recommend adoption to others without hesitation. So just think about that. So when they ask people who have adopted children, they say, would you recommend adoption without hesitation? 
less than half of the adoptive parents says yes. So that means most adoptive parents would not recommend adoption to others without hesitation. So it's, you know, it tells you something. And again, just want to check in here and say that, uh, that I'm not saying we shouldn't be adopting. I, I say we should be adopting. But what I also say is we should have a lot of support for people. We should really get them involved in support, and we should help parents understand what they can expect, that they're, they're adopting a child that has, in all likelihood has an attachment injury and therefore is special needs in a lot of ways. You know, if, if you have an autistic child that's, you know, moderate to extreme autism, you, you don't expect the kid to uh, race through school without any problems, right? You're, you're like, well, you know, my kid had, has autism, so, you know, it's, it's going to take some time, blah, blah, blah. We'll see how, you know, we'll just take it one step at a time. Well, it's the same with an adopted kid who has an attachment injury. You have to take everything within that context. When that kid starts to lie, you react against it, but you don't take it to heart. You don't take it personally. You don't freak out. You just say, well, this is what attachment injured children do sometimes. When that kid starts, you know, abusing substances and doesn't seem to care that you know, again, instead of freaking out and thinking that everything is falling apart, you say, well, you know, this, this happens to some attachment injured kids. Now, as a therapist, it's extremely easy for me to say that, right? It's extremely easy for me outside of the family to be like, ah, you know, just cope, you know, just deal with it. Because and inevitably, whenever I say this to adoptive parents, they'll say like, "So I'm just supposed to like accept that this kid is lying to me and using drugs and staying out all night and doing?" And, and I'll say, "No, I'm not saying accept. What I'm saying is, is you just have to have realistic expectations. You have to shift your range." of what's quote unquote acceptable, so to speak, uh, a little bit to, you know, one side because it's normal, very normal for attachment injured kids to exhibit these kinds of behaviors. And that's what you signed up for when, when you decided to adopt a child like that. Also research shows that even though many adoptive parents say they need help, so they, you know, they'll, survey adoptive parents and the parents will say, yeah, boy, uh, I need, I need help with, with this adoption. Most of the parents actually don't access the help due to a lack of access of, of help and resources or the shame of asking for help, or they don't have any time or their stigma with therapy. And so, uh, that's another important thing to point out. Okay. So, the last thing I want to talk about is communication with the birth family and open adoptions. And uh, the patron, you know, mentioned some things about this, about how his birth family had a number of unwanted, um, unpleasant incursions into his life. And so let's talk a little about, about the research on that, because there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings in this area as well. So in general, adoptive placements, adoptive adoptions can range from what we call closed or confidential, meaning that there's no contact between the birth family and the adoptive family. No identifying information, no, you know, no contact information is shared between the two. 
And on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we call open or fully disclosed adoptions, meaning that the birth family and the adoptive family exchange information and are, and are able to directly contact each other. And the uh, child might even know from, from the time they were adopted that their birth parents are out there somewhere and that they can contact them. And there might even be like, I, I knew an adoptive family that at every birthday they would invite the, the birth family. So the adoptive parents, you know, at little Jenny's fifth birthday, uh, the birth parents would come to that party. And it was always a bit of a sad, um, you know, uh, uh, process for the birth family because, um, you know, is there's a mixture of feelings for the, for the birth parents. The, the birth parents were young. They were teenagers when they got pregnant, and they just didn't think they were ready to have kids. And so they gave the kid up for adoption, and uh, because of the way things are now, they, they could stay in contact with that child. And the child knew about, you know, oh, here comes my, these are my, these are my biological parents. They're the ones who gave birth to me. And, and these are, these are my parents' parents. This is mommy and daddy. And these are the people who take care of me. And I have all these people, I have all these parents. And so if, with, if you approach it in this open-minded, non-stigma way, kids adjust to it very well because they don't understand our stupid culture around shame of adoption. That's just something we've established because of um, a lot of puritanical, puritan, puritan, you know, things of like illegitimate kids and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So throughout the, the history of adoption, uh, previous to the 1980s, most adoptions were completely closed meaning that there was no contact with the birth family. The, the birth parents would give the kid up for adoption and they would never see that kid again. And the kid would go their entire life without ever being able to contact their, their birth parents. This is, so this is prior to the 1980s. Mostly because of the stigma and shame of having a baby out of wedlock, you know, an illegitimate quote-unquote baby. But beginning in the 1980s, adoptions started to become more open. And now nearly all adoptions in the U.S. are open. And even if the adoption is closed, at the age of 18, many adoptees gain the legal right to their adoption records or the right to contact their birth family, uh, depending on the state law, because each state is different. Okay, so contact can be initiated by the adoptive family or the birth family, and it is sometimes mediated by a social worker or the adoption agency. Research shows that no one successful approach to communication between birth and adoptive families exists. So, there, so there's no one way to do this adoption thing. <laughs> there's a lot of different ways that seem to work, and so there's, there's no one way of, of uh, facilitating communication between birth and adoptive families. But evidence uh, also shows that when there is contact between birth parents, birth family, and adoptive family, that there are better outcomes for the child. So that's important to know. A lot of parents wonder, is it better to just completely, you know, do a clean cut, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in general, it's better to have contact between birth family and, uh, and adoptive family. 
but it has to be done in a in a constructive way. You, it sounds like the patron had contact with his birth family, and it actually didn't go well for him, and might have even caused a lot of problems in his life. So it's not that contact is guaranteed to be wonderful. It, it has to be done in a in a in a sensitive way, in a way that's smart, in a way that is responsive to everyone's needs, particularly the kids. Research has also found that adopted children who are securely attached to their adoptive parents have greater contact with their birth family. So this is interesting. It's a, I don't really exactly know if this is a causation correlation thing, but if you're an adopted child and you're securely attached to your adoptive parents, then you have a greater likelihood that you actually have had contact with your birth family. So the temptation here is to say that contact with your birth family actually increases your likelihood of being, of, of, have, of being securely attached to your adoptive parents. But that's not necessarily what this is showing. It's just, a, it's just a correlation at this point. But anyway, other research has found that when adoptions are open, teenagers have more positive feelings about their adoptive identity and their self-esteem. So if, if just to, again, highlight this, when, when you have an adoption that is open versus closed, teenagers have more positive feelings about their adoptive identity and they have higher self-esteems. If the child is satisfied with their contact with the birth family, the child is also less likely to have externalizing behaviors, meaning aggressiveness and this kind of stuff. So having positive contact with the birth family is an important element in the development of an adoptive of an adopted child in terms of behaviors and mental health and other outcomes. Okay, so what can I say in conclusion here? Well, to the patron who wrote in, he's saying that he has and he was adopted at birth. So that's important and he had a loving family. But he had contact with his birth family and it didn't go so well. And now he and throughout his life he suffered from identity issues from self-esteem issues and not fitting in. And he, you know, he, he goes to therapy and he likes to think a lot about things and the psychodynamics of things. And the way I would put it in psychodynamic terms, since this patron is interested in that sort of thing, I, I would say that uh, for the most part, if you're adopted at birth, your attachment is, potential is extremely similar to a child who is b- born into a family and not adopted. You could you could argue that, and I know I have some listeners, at least one, who is uh, very adamant about the idea that um, there are developmental things that happen uh, prior to birth, even, and that's true. You know, because a an in, a, a fetus will a baby in the belly. <laughs> will become attached in some ways to the mother already and even to the father, to the family uh, around the, um, and not to be heterocentric, but, um, you know, because the, the, the baby in the belly can hear people and is already starting to, to attach to those voices. The, uh, they attach to the, the heartbeat and this kind of thing. And so 
adopting a child out at birth is is disruptive in as much as that's disruptive. But anyway, the patron he he was adopted at birth, and so he uh, sounds like he had a good family, and they raised him really well. But he has some issues that seem to be related to his adoption, because. Uh, and and if you if you've never been adopted or you or you've never been close to someone who's been adopted, well, I'll tell you just from my own experience. Before I understood adoption, because I didn't grow up close to adoption as a child, I just thought, well, you know, if you're adopted at birth, then you just grow up like anybody else. You just say, well, these are my parents, and and it, it'll never bother you because you know you're your parents love you and why would you, you know, be upset about that? Well, there are major questions that we all ask ourselves that have uh, a little bit of distress, if not a lot of distress, if you've been adopted. Things like, who am I? In some ways, we all ask that question. Who am I? Well, when uh, you're like me, and you're born into a family and raised by your biological parents, a lot of that answer can be answered by your heritage and about who you are. You know, I, who am I, who, you know, when I ask myself, who am I? I go, well, who are my parents and who are their parents? I, on my wall in my hallway, just outside my door here, I have pictures and pictures and pictures of all of my biological family going back to my ancient ancestors, you know, great, great, great grandparents. And I look at them and I see myself, even though they don't look like me, um, particularly the white people, but I, I see myself and through that history, I know who I am. I will sometimes say that, you know, my Japanese ancestors came over in the 1800s to Washington state. And I, I, you know, I've, I'm a local, I'm a Washingtonian, I'm a Seattleite. And that helps me understand who I am and provides some stability. I remember the more, uh, as I learned more about my grandparents' life, I felt more secure myself. I felt stronger in who I was. I could feel myself solidifying more as I learned about who these people were. Well, when you're adopted into a family, even though you can absolutely turn to your adoptive parents as a basis for who you are as a person, there's this question mark of, well, what about my biological parents? How much of of me is in them? And you'll hear people say this, you know, they'll say, I met my uh, adopt, I met my birth father at the age of 25 and he moved the same as me. He talked the same as me. He had the same interests. We, we both were, you know, talkative and talked with our hands. And I always wondered where that came from. And, and that, that feeling is, is very, uh, satisfying and it's a need that we all have. We have a need to know who we are. And so if you're, adopted, it, it provides a, a, a bit of a curveball to that at the very least, even if you're in an open adoption and there's a lot of great communication. But 
if there's strained communication or no communication, then there's this huge question mark about who you are as a person. And this can cause a lot of problems. It can cause a lot of problems with, you know, identity. Who am I? What am I? What's my purpose in life? Where do I come from? Who are my people? And do I, what makes me a good person? What sort of things can I be proud of about me and my people? Where do I fit in? You know, the, the patron has, says he has a problem with fitting in. And, and I could say that I absolutely had the same problem growing up. I wasn't adopted, but as I was saying, I, was, I didn't look like anybody else. I was half Japanese, half white. And for a lot of people in Seattle, particularly, they'll just be like, oh, you know, ha- half Asian. Yeah, you're, you know, you're not that much of a person of color. <laughs> people will say that sometimes. But when I was growing up, believe me, I was a person of color. I, I mean, I might as well have just been a black kid because if you weren't white, there was something very different about you. And it's, uh, so not only did he have that going on for him because he was, you know, not white looking growing up in a white family, but he was also uh, adopted. And that feeling of you're just not really one of us. You're not really in our clan. That, um, that, that can be very damaging uh, for the rest of your life. You can always have a sense of not really fitting in. And for me, that basically, you know, that wasn't a good feeling, but it also was a strength which I want to just say, because I don't fit in and because I, I don't fit neatly into, into any ethnic category, I have always questioned everything in culture. I, you know me if you listen to this podcast that I don't, I, I typically don't accept anything that anyone says <laughs> unless it's, you know, firmly established. You know, evolutionary psychology, when I first started learning about it, I was very positive about evolutionary psychology because from what I'd heard, I thought it was great. And as I started reading it, I was extremely skeptical about what I was hearing. Uh, Donald Trump is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm always skeptical. I'm like, well, you know, I, it's, I, I'm always questioning what everyone is saying because I think as a child growing up, I never really fit in. And so I never... I never was allowed into a club of, of a particular group of people. And therefore when a group of people tell me something, I automatically question that because I, I've never really felt like I was a part of a group. If that makes any sense. Am I making sense? <laughs> anyway, so there's a pro and a con to not fitting in is what I'm, what I'm saying. So what else can I say in conclusion? Um, I will say that searching for your identity patron is a, is a good thing to do. It sounds like you're doing that. You know, who are you? Where do you come from? Who are your birth parents? What does it mean that you have these biological roots? Um, have you been fed a negative version of their story? A lot, a lot of adoptive parents, I can imagine in this patron's family, I could imagine the dot, the, 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 you know, the adoptive parents saying negative things about the birth parents, you know, that'll happen sometimes. And so as an extension, you yourself, you yourself might start feeling bad about yourself because it's like, Oh, well, my adoptive parents are talking crap about my birth parents, which kind of means, 
you know, it's my fault. You know, you can imagine a kid thinking that, right? Well, maybe you have to do some investigating in that and find out who your birth parents really are. Maybe there's some really great things about them or who their parents are. Your great, your, your birth grandparents. Maybe there's some great things about that. Really exploring and finding out who you are and, and where you come from can be helpful, I think. Um, if that, you know, if you want to do that. Um, in therapy, you want to be with a therapist. And if you're a therapist and you have a client like this, you want to create space for people to explore this, to explore the meaning of their adoption, to explore their identity, to explore their ethnicity, and to explore what it was like to be adopted and what that means. It's a very existential question that I think, in my experience, universally adopted kids will go through at some point, often in their 20s or 30s. They'll go through a phase where they're just, they're, they just are compelled to explore this, and therapy can really help that. You know, there are really sad questions, sort of grieving questions of, so someone gave me away, and, you know, if, if someone gave me away, does that mean that anyone can give me away? And these are important questions to explore and to process with, with someone who cares about you. Another thing I'll say is that when you're treating adoptive parents, uh, this is what I will do. So adoptive, adoptive parents will come to me and say, so I think I made a big mistake. I, I adopted this kid and this kid is ruining, ruining my life. Well, I, because I really deep down want the adoptive parents to keep the child, it's one of the few instances in therapy where I actually have an agenda that might not necessarily match up with, with what the parents have. Because if the, if the parents give that child back, it's just another horrific attachment injury that will damage this person, damage this child. And I really want to prevent that. And most therapists really want to prevent that. And most adoptive parents want to prevent that. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll and, and I, so uh, in the beginning, I wasn't always this way. And I get supervisees that will bring cases to me like this. And they'll, they'll say, yeah, so these adoptive parents come in and all they do is complain about this kid. And I, I just tell them like, look, you got to like stop being so negative. And I, I will tell supervisees to do the following. You really want to support and validate adoptive parents' concerns about their adopted child. Adopted children with attachment injuries can present some very, very difficult behaviors, believe me. And it's justified uh, because they were mistreated and they're going to exhibit some behaviors. And so you really just want to validate them. You don't want to shut them down. You don't want to tell them to look on the bright side. You want to listen to them and you want to say, yeah, man, that must be really tough. I can understand, you know, that that is stressing you out. Any parent in your shoes would be stressed out about that. So that's a big function of therapy is just letting people vent and phenomenologically being curious and understanding their experience. Another thing that I do is I try to lower their expectations, like I was saying before. I try to say, look, you know, this isn't your fault. Because this kid has an attachment injury that we all know about, 
um, because of this and that of their early childhood life, we can't expect that we're going to see some of these behaviors. And so, uh, don't take it personally. It's not your parenting. It's, you know, it's, it's not the fault of your parenting. It's the, it's the fault of this child being mistreated as a young child. And so, you know, it's normal. Let's lower your expectations. Let's get you some. So, and this leads me to the third thing of like getting people to support, getting them respite, getting them help, getting them therapy, getting them, uh, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a bigger village to raise an adopted child, uh, particularly people, you know, who have had attachment disruptions, um, not necessarily kids who are adopted at birth. Um, and uh, the other thing that I do is I will do my best to inspire the adoptive parent to stay the course. You know, I'll, t- I'll tell them in all sincerity that they are noble, wonderful people for adopting this child and for taking care of this child. I will tell them that if there's a heaven, then, th- you know, they have a first class ticket <laughs> because of the sacrifices that they have made in adopting a children, uh, in adopting a child in need. And I tell them that in all likelihood, 20 years from now, your adopted child will come back to you and thank you for what you did. And if not, I will. I'll come back to you 20 years from now and thank you for what you did. Because uh, the you know it's such a noble thing to love and sacrifice and give to an adopted child. It's just such a wonderful thing. And so I'll say that in all sincerity because it's true. And I'm trying to inspire the adoptive parent to, to stay the course and to see the higher minded benefits, so to speak of, of holding on to that adopted child. And I've seen it work. I've seen because they don't get that from anybody else. No one, no one else is telling them that. And so when I tell them that they, they feel like, wow, yeah, this is a great thing I'm doing. (laughs) Um, and, and that does make me feel good about myself. And so, uh, so those are the things that I do with adoptive parents. But anyway, that's different from what the patron is asking. He's asking about identity issues, self-esteem issues, not fitting in. Um, and um, like I said, I, I would just... Uh, so in terms of psychodynamics, in my language, as, as you grew up, you internalized your caregivers, but you also internalized your birth parents because they're important people to you in your life. And so you have these internal conflicts between the vision you have of your birth father, your birth mother, and your adoptive parents. They're, they're at war with each other, and they're having trouble integrating you know, one thing you can actually do in therapy that a lot of people do to, to integrate these kinds of things is empty chair work, meaning that you, um, and you can do this on your own too, you don't have to do it in therapy, but you essentially embody as much as you can one part of yourself. So for instance, patron, you could say, at this moment, I'm going to, I'm just going to write, I'm going to journal from the perspective of my birth father. I'm just going to, I'm just going to write and write and write and write 
um, I'm as a I'm gonna be expressing my inner birth father, if that makes any sense. And then you just go around the room. Now I'm gonna do my birth mother. I'm gonna express my inner birth mother, and then I'm gonna express my adoptive parents, and I'm gonna express that. And then you have them talk to each other. What would they say to each other? What do those different parts of you say to each other? What are they? What are they fighting about? Why is it hard for you to uh, fit in? Why is it hard for you to find an identity? Um, how can these parts of yourself start to cooperate more? So that's another thing you can do. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 